This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. There goes the neighborhood. Many big city schools struggle with the G word, that is gentrification, but there are steps schools can take to better deal with it. Plus, norms about manhood and masculinity are changing. Are teachers seeing a difference in their male students? Three female educators give us their takes. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Kirsten Brown, you used to be in the classroom. Now what do you do in education? I am a principal. At a high school correct? Yes, high school and middle school. Wow, got all the grades in there, <laughs> secondary to the max. Luann Fox, what do you teach? Hi, I teach high school English. And Maria Kennedy, what do you Hi. teach? I teach AP U.S. History. Kirsten, Luann, and Maria are all three educators in the Kansas City metro area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The cheat sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also is a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday cheat sheet at NoWrongAnswers.com. Gentrification. You often know it when you see it. I'll define it as the process by which an area or neighborhood of a city which has previously been neglected finds new popularity as more affluent and often more white residents start moving in. Basically, if you start seeing more bike shares and slow drip coffee shops, your neighborhood might be gentrifying. Take New York City and the D.C. suburbs of Northern Virginia. Those two areas are likely about to see a major influx of higher-income working professionals and families as Amazon adds its HQ2s to those areas. But gentrification is happening in less dramatic ways in big cities across America, like here in Kansas City. The downtown area has undergone a resurgence over the past decade or so, and with it, seen an influx of young professionals and families, many of them well-educated, high-earning, and white move into the area. Well, what effect does this have on the schools that have existed in these neighborhoods and areas long before they became trendy? Is gentrification necessarily a bad thing for public schools? And what can cities and schools do to help ease the impacts of gentrification? Those are big, thorny questions, and luckily we are joined by someone who has thought about them a lot to help us answer them. Dr. Allison Rhoda is a professor of education, specializing a lot of her work in urban education policy at Malloy College on Long Island, and she has studied the effects of gentrification on traditional neighborhood schools in New York City. Uh, Dr. Allison Rhoda, thanks for joining No Wrong Answers. Thank you. Uh, well, can I just start by asking how you define gentrification in your work? So a, a community that is uh, low income and an influx of middle class, upper middle class, um, I usually term that, that influx of families advantaged. So advantaged families come in and they uh, are attracted to the diverse community and the neighborhood, uh, but they tend to opt out of the neighborhood schools. 
So, yeah, your work has really looked at the effects of gentrification specifically on schools and local neighborhood public schools. Um, How have you found um, local neighborhood schools affected by uh, processes of gentrification? What happens when higher-earning families or advantaged families, as you call them, move into um, a previously neglected or even depressed area? Well, that's the million-dollar question. (laughs) I think uh, much of what we know about gentrification in schools is more at the the macro level, uh, looking at gentrification changes demographically. And so my research extends those uh, quantitative or statistical findings by asking how parents and school leaders negotiate and respond to gentrification in schools. It's, gentrification is often viewed as a, a mechanism to further segregation, but it also can hold potential to integrate schools. And we see that in New York City, um, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in Manhattan. And our main message in our Chalkbeat article was if policymakers are proactive and create structures to accommodate demographic changes because they know they will occur when HQ2 comes from Amazon and not reactive, then we could uh, really plan and be proactive at creating diverse, high-quality schools that uh, older residents and newer residents will want to opt into and not leave the neighborhood for choice options, because that's what we usually um, tend to see. That's the status quo for advantaged families using school choice as a tool to to leave neighborhood schools uh, for so-called better options Yet yeah, you alluded to it uh, in, in that last answer, but you have studied the attitudes of gentrifiers, advantaged families moving yeah. into the neighborhood. Um, you did some research that was published last year that surveyed a group of gentrifying parents in New York City and how they felt about the local schools of the neighborhoods of which they were moving into. Can you tell? Can you tell us what you found in that research? Yeah. So my focus was on a pro-neighborhood school parent advocacy group, and this was a group of parents that were educators. So they had that background, and they got together because they saw the, the pattern of gentrify, other gentrifier parents leaving the neighborhood, using choice and the consumer model of school choice, uh, shopping around and applying to every option. And they said, wait a minute, what about our local neighborhood schools? Let's check those out. And they went on tours and saw that, you know, looking at the teaching and learning instead of just the demographics and the test scores and some of the outcomes that other parents were just looking at and and some of the reputations, um, they saw, you know, large classrooms and student work that was amazing and experienced teachers and arts and music programs that um, really changed their mindsets about what the neighborhood schools uh, could offer their children. And also they thought about if they're leaving the neighborhood, what does that do to the neighborhood schools left behind? What does that do to the community and other children? They really wanted to stay, put their resources in the in the local schools, and improve schools for all children. Yeah. Um, yeah well, Allison Rota, you did uh, you and some colleagues did recently write an article for Chalkbeat New York, specifically in response to um, New York City um, about to embark on Amazon's new HQ2 project. Um, what can mm-hmm schools do um, to ease the effects of gentrification or think more intentionally about how to deal with gentrification? 
I think the first step is to create diverse schools uh, so parents have that choice because right now there's, you know, very segregated schools. And then the, the second point is once you have diversity, how do you maintain that? Because we also see schools that are gentrifying become more popular to the white middle-class families, and then they flip, and um, that marginalizes black and Latino families, uh, low-income families that were there a lot longer that can really stop um, the diversity in its tracks. And then, so maintaining the diversity and then turning that diversity into integration, which is different than, than just a diverse school. So being intentional uh, and having, in my current study with school leaders, having a leader with a vision of equity at every level. If schools gentrify and uh, become imbalanced, then it's really hard to create diversity again and um, attract low-income Black and Latino families. We also see in diverse schools sometimes uh, within school segregation. So I also have conducted research on gifted and talented programs within schools that also have general education programs, and they're very racialized. Um, you can just tell by the color of the children's skin which program they're in. Um, I, I wonder for our teachers here, you, know, you read um, Allison Rhoda's piece in Chalkbeat before coming in. She read, wrote it with several colleagues, I should say, who've also done research in this mm-hmm. area. Um, but for our teachers here, I, that was specifically focused, a lot of her research is focused specifically on New York City, which is a very different context from Kansas City. But I wonder, what do you think lessons that could be applied from what may have been learned in New York? Yeah, I, I think the interesting dynamic that plays out in my school is it is quite diverse. And so I noticed even well, in, by design, by design, by design yeah, exactly. Right? Not, a, mm-hmm. not, not yeah. an accident. Yeah, so. exactly. And, you know, because we, we take kids from all across the city. We don't really we don't prioritize as, as Maria's situation. But, you know, one thing that we find is when you have a school that's diverse, biases within educators become really, really clear yeah. and it's harder to see in a, in a more homogenous setting um, to mm-hmm. the point where we had to be really intentional about bringing in anti-bias training and just so people can be aware of their biases. And some people don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to confront that reality within themselves. And so mm-hmm. that's that's prompted us to, to change the way in which we hire. So our questions are mm-hmm. really pointed about um, you know, what they believe in terms of um, equity and, and their mindsets, because we cannot have these this harm done to our students by people who, who, who have these biases that they, they um, want to keep unchecked. And so that's mm-hmm. something that we've been really intentional about, um, similar to what you've mentioned, and also making sure that we're really um, providing development around culturally responsive pedagogy so that all of our students are... are, are are reflected in the curriculum and are reflected in what they learn in class in an intentional way so that they're, they're great. Um, there's a greater level of investment in, in the content. Should local neighborhood schools, Allison wrote, should their goal be to attract and entice gentrifying parents to opt into using them as opposed to opting out? Uh, I think so, but it's really not on their radar, especially when their school is overcrowded. 
Dr. Allison Rhoda is a professor of education specializing in urban education policy at Malloy College on Long Island. Um, her work recently published with some colleagues in Chalkbeat, New York, on the effects of gentrification, especially on New York City schools ahead of the move-in of Amazon's HQ2. Dr. Allison Rhoda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Shaving brand Gillette earned praise and criticism for a recent ad that reworks its well-known slogan, The Best a Man Can Get, into a message that challenges traditional visions of masculinity. Here's a snippet of the nearly two-minute long film, which starts off by showing a rapid series of scenes depicting, I guess what you would say are stereotypical negative masculine behaviors, like one kid bullying another, teenage boys ogling scantily clad women on TV and a male boss patronizingly correcting a female colleague in a board meeting. We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. And that was just part of the ad. We don't want to necessarily relitigate Gillette's advertising choice here, whether we think its corporate messaging is effective or appropriate. But the fact that Gillette felt compelled to address issues of so-called toxic masculinity and the ongoing debate started by the rise of the Me Too movement shows just how pervasive this conversation has become in our culture. And we thought just it so happens we have an all-female panel this week. It could be an interesting opportunity to reframe a conversation that we've actually had before on No Wrong Answers. Specifically, though, we want to know... Um, with our educators before us today, how they see masculinity manifesting itself in their schools and how they, as women, deal with it. And let me start here. So some commentators see this Gillette ad as proof that norms of masculinity are changing in our society, or at the very least, that there's a conversation starting about changing those norms. The ad, which we can assume is directed more at men my age and others, concludes with the narrator saying, Quote, the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow, end quote. Well, I guess you teach those men of tomorrow. I guess what's your assessment of whether their concept and definition of masculinity is, in fact, changing or not? I know that in teaching high school English, I teach uh, advanced placement. So whenever I'm asking a question in the classroom, always I'll get more boys willing to answer than girls. When girls do... It's never first. They, they always feel like the water has had to be tested by boys first. There's a lot more girls looking at each other or looking around where boys just don't seem to do that. And I think if I wasn't aware of the way that behavior plays out, boys would probably just take over in my classroom. And I definitely will step in uh, when I feel like I need to and I'll say, I need to hear from a girl or uh, let's have a girl take a risk at this point. Yeah, that's so interesting because at my school there's a bit of a different experience, and I was wondering about why that might be. One thing that I've noticed at my school is, yes, we absolutely have, like, boys who are quieter. We also have girls who are quieter. But at the same time, actually girls are stepping in pretty frequently and pretty regularly in class, which I think, Luann, to your point, is not necessarily the norm, and it certainly was not something that I've seen at other schools that I've taught Mm -hmm. at. And so 
I don't know, and I'm, I'm open to other people's like hypotheses, but one thing that I've been thinking about is that almost all of the leaders at my school are women. So our CEO is a woman. Uh, nine of our, I think, 11 instructional coaches are women. Six of our seven deans are women. Like just women are in power all over the place. Our entire science department is women. Um, most of our odd. math teachers. That's odd, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm wondering like, if part of it has to do with the fact that they see women consistently being in places and positions of power and running the show. Uh, well, Kirsten, you are a... A woman administrator, a woman school leader. Um, do you think often about how you and your faculty approach and deal with boys? And is that different from how you think about and approach the girls at your school? Yeah, so I don't know if it's necessarily different in the approach. I just know that I think that especially this generation of students seem to be more um, social justice minded and really about disrupting cultural norms that have existed that have skew power one way towards males. And our, our students... Um, I, are deeply aware of that reality. And so I, I think that in a lot of instances, when we talk about um, gender, I, I can think of one example really clearly where we had these empowerment sessions where we brought in people from the community to talk to, to our girls and our boys in our high school. And we said, if you identify as a female, you can go to this empowerment group. Mm-hmm. If you identify as a male, you can go to this empowerment group. And one boy came up to me and he says, that's not okay for you to call it a male empowerment group. We already have power. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, thank you for checking me. Like, you're deeply aware that, you know, within our society, males often do have power. And so perhaps we need to, like, rethink the language around that. And I was just thinking, I do teach a language and composition class. So one of the Mm. things that's always uh, interested me and kind of bothered me, I will frequently show students national examples of AP compositions. And they're always written by hand. And, uh... Compositions that earn higher scores, kids will say he when they and they'll pronounce it. You know, they'll say, "Well, he wrote this or he wrote this," and and then I'll show them an essay that perhaps didn't earn uh, as high, and then they'll say she. And I and I would ask my students why, and they would they would say, "Well, it's the handwriting." I mean, you know, that's what because because I don't think they have the language, and I really don't think that they have the wherewithal to reach deeper. But lang- but handwriting is something that they understand. Well, that looked more girly, so therefore that. So then, when I switched and do word process papers and say I'll show those, it translates. It's the same. So they're looking at uh, word process papers, and if it's going to score really high, they'll say he not knowing who that writer is, and they'll always say she when the writing misses for something. And I have had to call them out for Mm -hmm. the last probably decade about that. That is amazing. New group of kids every year, and it's the same uh, range of norms, right? right? And the way they see it goes across the genders. Uh, I mean, it's internalized with, with both sexes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they all say that. Boys and girls alike will say this, this high paper, you know, this, this, this paper that would achieve a lot is like, that's a he. And I'll say, we don't know who wrote that. Why do you assume he? You know, uh, last year, a teacher, and this is a, a wildly different situation from any of the, the situations you all teach in, but a teacher at an unnamed elite private all-boys school in Australia wrote anonymously an op-ed for The Guardian newspaper, and uh, she described how she regularly witnessed her students and her male colleagues, in fact, um, doing 
chauvinistic, sexist things that made her uncomfortable on the job. She writes, for instance, about carrying a tray of coffee down the hallway for herself and her colleagues. And a male student who saw her called out to her and, and you know, asking as if she were a waitress, you know, saying something like, coffee over here, please. And then he and his friends all cracking up. And um, she writes about what she calls a gendered confidence. That's the term that she uses that boys at her school have an acceptance of sexist behavior, audacity and self-aggrandizement that she says stays with them into adulthood. Admittedly, again, a very different setting educationally from any that you teach in. But I wonder, does what she describe, um, does that resonate with you at all in your experiences in, in working with young men? I think so. I think that, you know, even thinking back to the days in which I was a student, when boys would do things that were deeply inappropriate, I was always shocked on to, well, boys will be boys. And I think that same sentiment was expressed in the article as well, Um, especially there's a part where her boss berates her and she is actually like becomes really anxious because he's getting so aggressive when he's upset with her about her pushing back to his um, curriculum suggestions that she had to lock herself in the office. And when she came out of it and told one of her colleagues, her female colleagues, like she said, well, you know, he, he gets angry sometimes. It's kind of like, oh, that's just the way it is. Um, so I think it's really incumbent upon us as educators to, to check that right away and let kids know, hey, like this is actually unacceptable. So it doesn't um, become a problem as, as they continue to navigate throughout life. Mm-hmm. I think like a couple of things that I would add just from my own experience in, uh, in the classroom. One, to my point earlier, I do have a lot of girls chime in and chime in regularly, and they don't seem to have a problem with that. But one gender difference I do notice is that boys are much more confidently wrong. Mm. So even when girls, like, they will speak up and they're not afraid to take the risk, but I will hear, uh, I don't I don't know, is it blah? I, or do you hear, and, like, just kidding? You're like, uh, if, if, you know, yeah, I've heard uh, one girl, one girl says that. Yeah. But I think, but girls, they will take the risk. They will share, but they'll be like, oh, I'm not sure, but I'll go ahead and try. I'm not Whereas, sure if this is what you're looking, looking for, but I'll but, go ahead and share. Yeah. And boys will just be like, bam, answer, yeah. whether yeah. like whether it's right or it's wrong. Um, and so they're not as inhibited. I agree. Uh, the second thing, uh, I think, Luann, you were talking earlier that like you said like girls are also falling prey to this trap of assuming that. A, that handwriting is gendered, uh, but that B, that a student who, a gender neutral student, this like anonymous student could be masculine if it's getting a, a higher score on a paper. Uh, it, there's a parallel point to that. But um, you guys know the R. Kelly like documentary and that mm-hmm. whole situation. Okay. So, Kirsten, to your point, I had a lot of boys at school who were like, Mm-mm, like, that's not okay. What he's doing is not okay. That is a huge problem. But some girls like defended him. That happened. And I was and I my principal, who is a man, um, but is also very like who has done a lot of thinking about his own male privilege and is very aware of like toxic masculinity, also addressed it with the girls. Like in addition to me, we kind of did it in tandem. Mm -hmm. But he told me he was like, wow, Maria, I am really concerned about some of the mindsets that our young women. What were they? What what, what were some things that they were saying? Well, just that like, oh, you know, like don't rag on him. Like he's my favorite. Like he's my husband. Mm -hmm. Like things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that, too, with Chris Brown. You know, whenever there's an allegation or something like, you know, these allegations keep coming up with him. My, more of my girls, way more than the boy mm-hmm. male students, will come, defend him come and be to like, their defense. yeah, yes. and even like that, yes. that idolization, like, oh, he's my boyfriend, he's my all he's my these husband. Things, like, like, don't talk about my husband that yeah. way. Yeah, and even though like mm-hmm. there's like such egregious, um, so many egregious examples and people coming up saying or came, coming out talking about the the acts that have been done to them, they still defend him and almost make light of the situation yeah. as well. Wow. Okay, and I see I, this is okay. This is. 
this is uh, taking it in, in, in a new or a related place, but I'm also thinking back to the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation mm-hmm. hearings because we, so I teach history, and we paused class for a moment um, to actually talk about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So I was like, we just, we cannot, I cannot in good faith as a social studies teacher not talk about this. Um, and so we talked about it. But uh, at that point, my girls and my boys were overwhelmingly against Kavanaugh and believed Dr. Blasey Ford. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, what's the difference? Mm, That's good. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Perhaps it's like, you know, this cultural element of like, oh, this is an icon in some way. I identify with this person because they're a musician and they're, I don't know, they're idolized for the the big character that they are and the persona and the music they produce. All those elements perhaps maybe makes them more compelling defend them it could be i don't know i'd one other thing that i would be remiss if i didn't point out is like the fact that brett kavanaugh is white and my mm-hmm. students are predominantly almost exclusively save for one uh identify as being people of color mm-hmm. and i'm wondering i don't know i, mm-hmm. I don't want to make any speculations on that but that's just something that i noticed mm-hmm. it also potentially could be that kavanaugh is older or that there's just an assumption I don't know. Uh, another perspective, comedian Michael Ian Black wrote a widely read op-ed for the New York Times last February. This was shortly after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, which, like nearly all mass school shootings, was carried out by a boy. And he said in this op-ed, um, the main point, really, the, the takeaway line was, quote, America's boys are broken. And then he went on. And I'm curious to know if you agree with his assessment as educators. This is what he wrote. And it's a lengthy quote from his op-ed. The past 50 years have redefined what it means to be female in America. Girls today are told that they can do anything, be anyone. They've absorbed this message. They're outperforming boys in school at every level. But it isn't just about performance. To be a girl today is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversation about the complexities of womanhood, its many forms and expressions. Boys, though, have been left behind. No commensurate movement has emerged to help them navigate toward a full expression of their gender. It's no longer enough to, quote, be a man. We no longer even know what that means. And I just want your thought at your thoughts as and all three of you are women educators who daily work with young men and women what do you think of that sentiment uh, I I when I read this article I was just right on I was underlining all kinds of things here I just uh, everything that that he asserts I think I'm I'm with uh, one of the things that I think is really really interesting is how boys don't even have the language to talk about how they feel about being trapped because they're trapped. Um, in in their expression of themselves, that they have, they just don't have language because it the language that exists is already seen as feminine in and of itself. How do you so? How do you see that playing out with your you? You're suggesting that you see your boys trapped, like you 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 think you get the sense that they feel trapped. What does that look like in school? Well, they never talk about their feelings. They're 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 not going to talk about how they feel. They're, they're, it is it is the stoicism. It is the it is the the idea that if they can if they express themselves at all somehow it's seen as feminine. If it's not about trying to get a girl, uh, then they don't really have use for for any any kind of softer language. It's or, it's kind of like what Maria said. Bam, they're going to answer the question. I mean that that's just kind of what they do. Or if We're they're just, allowed to express themselves like in a way that is. Um uh, dominating, like if they, they play a sport or if they're competitive, um, they can express themselves that way in those in that type of outlet. But mm-hmm. right, and and what I just would like to add that you know there's an also a controversy over like whether toxic masculinity exists just right. because now that we've named it and whenever you name anything right, then you can always attack it once it's actually named and defined, and 
to that part of the problem, I would say, you know, I mean, whether or not you call it toxic masculinity, it's a thing. And we might as well call it what it is because it really it really does exist. I mean, we've seen this for for decades upon decades. And, and I know one of the prescriptions for making this better is to teach boys empathy, right? And to teach them to have a fuller expression of their gender. And I was wondering about this this morning. I'm thinking why we don't do that and what is the fear of doing that? And so one of the things I would just like to posit as a question is, is it that we are afraid as a culture that we just don't trust, right? That everyone won't be teaching their boys more empathy. Like if we teach our boys more empathy and that group over there doesn't do that, then those boys will trump our boys and then there will be a win-lose situation. And like we're really not out of a win-lose mindset. Is, is that why we're not really moving forward? Like we know what to do. So you're saying like if, if one group of parents, one, you know, say progressive-minded group of parents or schools really does um, try to t- make the concerted effort of making their boys more sensitive and more empathetic and, and more in touch with their emotions, but that someday along the road down the line, they're going to get run over by the boys who weren't taught that. Is that what you're saying? Probably. I mean, I'm, I'm just like, what, what is at the root of not, what is at the root of not moving forward? The sense I get from all of you is that this bigger cultural conversation that we're having really is in a lot of ways seeping down to your kids, um, to your schools. I mean, we, we often talk about like big cultural trends or news events and you know, we talk about them higher level as adults, but then oftentimes we say, well, how, how is this affecting kids? And like, eh, kids don't really know. They're not really paying attention. But you seem to all be suggesting that in this conversation with these, with this, whatever you want to call it, toxic masculinity, me too, they are paying attention to that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I'm an older person here, but I, and I don't mean to, to be any kind of a downer, but I, I'll be honest, and I, I this, the thing that frightens me is not so much what's happening now, and I love um, that it looks like there's some progress being made and the conversations being opened up, but you know, progress is never linear, and I'm afraid of the mm-hmm. backlash because mm-hmm. I think that that's absolutely inevitable. And I don't know where our kids are going to be, at least my high school kids, are going to be in that wave. Are they going to be in the wave of the making the progress? Or are they going to be, for lack of a better word, like beneficiaries of you know, a backlash that, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be the inevitable snapback that's going to occur after we widen these conversations. And uh, that's what I fear. Before we go to Kids These Days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. The Los Angeles School Board has approved a resolution that calls for a moratorium on charter schools in that district. A cap on charter schools was a key demand of striking teachers during their six-day work stoppage last month. The school board's vote actually came just hours after thousands of charter school supporters rallied outside district headquarters in L.A. An ultimate decision about limits on charter schools, however, must be made by the state of California. New research finds evidence of race and gender-based bias in children as young as preschool. The study, published in the journal Developmental Science, concludes that the four-year-old children in the study, when shown images of other children of different races and genders, demonstrated a, quote, strong and consistent pro-white bias and also expressed more positivity towards male images than female images. 
The researchers say the results, quote, underscore the importance of addressing bias in the first years of life. Here, here. <laughs> from the world of higher education, a professor at Duke University has stepped down from her position as director of a special master's program at that school after she sent an email to students and staff that urged students in the program to, as she put it, commit to using English 100% of the time while in department buildings. The professor wrote the email after she says two other professors complained to her about graduate students that they had heard loudly talking with each other in Chinese in a student lounge. <laughs> Problems don't go away in college. Wow. Yeah, those were some of the other education wow. stories that caught our eye recently. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcast like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard here, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Kirsten, what are your kids into? Yeah, so the other day at school, I saw a student walking around with a bandana around his eyes. I promptly oh approached him. Oh, here we go. Yes. I know this is. Asked yeah. him what he was doing, and he told me the bird box challenge, which oh, was... Gosh. Uh, yeah. I was hoping that that had peaked already and gone over. Oh, no. So he was doing it in school. In school. What was he trying to, what was he trying to accomplish? I don't even think he knows. <laughs> yeah. We got some bird boxers, too. Uh, for me, kids at my school are into something called court warming, which is uh, it's like homecoming, but we don't have a football team. We have a basketball team, and so instead of homecoming, we have court warming. Uh, this is uh, going to be our spirit week. Tomorrow is PJ Day, uh, so I'll be wearing my Pillsbury Doughboy pants. It's going to be great. <laughs> so wait, they won't be into that though. So wait, well, my high school had court warming too. We also had homecoming in the fall. So did your school have homecoming in the fall? Maria? No, because we don't have a football team. So you so this is I mean this is it. This is the This is it. This, this is, is our it. big dance yeah, besides right. proms for the high school. So I know some schools have homecoming in the fall. I mean a lot of schools have homecoming in the fall and court warming in this in this time of year. So this is for your school. This is it. The, all the marbles in this all one. All the marbles. <laughs> okay. Uh and Luann, what are your kids into? Well, we've been speaking about privilege throughout this podcast in uh in multiple ways and it just what my kids are into absolutely speaks to that because uh, they love AirPods, and that's what they want to talk about is AirPods and who's got AirPods and who doesn't have AirPods, and that just tells you about the population that I teach. These are the headphones, the wireless headphones? Oh, yeah, but, I mean, they're Apple. I mean, it's it's not just wireless headphones. I mean, it's just, I mean, those made by Apple, you must get Apple AirPods. And how many of your students have AirPods? Uh, all of them would like to say that they do. Um, but there definitely is a haves and have not situation. So there's the ones who have them, they're the ones who wish to get them, and then they're the ones who don't want to talk about it at all. And do the AirPods do anything special besides just serving as headphones? Can you, like... Not really. And they're just <laughs> okay. kind of annoying, though, when the students will walk into the classroom with them and they think that you're not going to be able to notice that they're there when... <laughs> When you're trying to actually teach, so uh, that's that's. They're a little bit more discreet issue. than having like the wire hanging. Well, down absolutely, from your ears, but, but. Uh, they're also shiny white, and you know, and it's just not that. I mean, if you're savvy at all, it's just not that hard to see. But they love them, absolutely. Well, good luck in trying to police that, Luann. 
Hate being a policewoman. <laughs> thanks to our teachers this week, Kirsten Brown, Luann Fox, and Maria Kennedy. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids... Be nice to your teachers. teachers.